Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Let's see if I'm on. Am I on there? Beautiful. I don't know about you guys, but it is warm in here today. How are we doing on the air back there? It might be. Like, I love the weather in California. I don't want it in here right now, though. Woo. Well, I think you guys know where I'm going. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And I have to give a word of thanks to the church as a whole by, I guess it's Tuesday, it'll be Tuesday morning, I will officially celebrate one year here at MVBC. And we know that's not by my own doing. So we rejoice in the Lord for that. We've been very excited to be here and we're, we're excited to continue on in ministry. And this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. I'm going to be reading again from the Legacy Standard Bible. But this is what the psalmist writes. He says, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the boastful, I saw the peace of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of of mankind. Therefore, lofty pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The delusions of their heart overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue goes through the earth. Therefore, his people return here to his place, and waters of fullness are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You caused them to fall to destruction. How they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you, nevertheless... I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will lead me, and afterward take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my, my heart fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have set 
Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. So reads the word of the Lord. Why is it that the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? If God is good, if God is sovereign, shouldn't the opposite be true? Why, why do those who stand in stark contrast to the law of God succeed so greatly in this world? Why do Hollywood elites who become famous for their, for their sins, for their, for their drunkenness, for their, for their debauchery, why do they buy multi-million dollar homes? Just last week, a Hollywood star purchased a home in Florida, multi-million dollars, with cash. How did she come to fame? By lying to her parents and deceiving them. Why is it that the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? Good businessmen fail, they suffer, they they face hardship in business, while the one who cheats his way to the top does well and makes good money. Cheating students sleep well at night and get an A on the exam, while a good student studies all night, tireless going into the exam, and gets a C. There are couples who struggle to have kids, and yet each year, millions of abortions are performed worldwide. Unbelievers all around are succeeding immensely, and these are very real stories, very real problems that we wrestle with daily. In regard to the church, you think of the church as a whole, where the underground church in foreign nations where the gospel can't be preached, they face great persecution. Members are killed constantly and martyred for the gospel. Yet false teachers gain new converts. And the false church and a false view of God grows. Why is it that the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? This dilemma, it's very real to us. These these questions are not new for us in life, and thankfully they are not new to Scripture either. Psalm 37.1, I don't have it on the screen there, but listen along. Psalm 37.1 says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward doers of unrighteousness. David, the psalmist there, recognized that. Jeremiah, in his prophecy, writes, Indeed, I would speak matters of justice with you, O Lord. Why has the wicked succeeded? Why are all those who deal in treachery complacent? Job, he definitely dealt with this. He asks in Job 21.7, Why do the wicked still live? Continue on and also become very powerful. This dilemma is not new. It's been around since the time of of Scripture's writing. And each of these writers has a way of dealing with this problem, this dilemma. David, in Psalm 37, he goes on to say that you need to trust in the Lord. And Job, Job would recognize at the end of his book, that God was above us and sovereign over all things. Therefore, he shouldn't worry. But, but Asaph, here in Psalm 73, he, he sees it like it is. He struggles with it in a very real way. Asaph is, is considered an individual who does see it like it is. He doesn't beat around the bush of trouble He doesn't move on quickly like the other writers might have done. He wrestles with this. And you see it here in Psalm 73. And so today we're going to follow Asaph on this struggle. 
And it's, it's my hope and my goal that we're going to come to the same conclusion that Asaph does in this psalm. And that our understanding of the wicked would be rightly viewed. So looking at our outline for this morning, you have it there in your bulletin. It's a fairly straightforward outline, four points, 28 verses. And it sort of moves in a circular motion, if, if you want to think of it in a picturesque way. He starts at the top with his affirmation, and then he slowly descends into doubt as he makes his observation, and he reaches rock bottom with his frustration, but then he is reoriented back to his original affirmation. It moves in a circle. Now the setting of this psalm is is largely unknown. Asaph, it says here that it's the psalm of Asaph. He was a division of the Levites, one of the singers, a choir director perhaps. My kind of guy. But beyond that, we're, we're not entirely sure what's going on here, what the setting is here. The form of this psalm, whether it's a wisdom psalm, if it's a lament psalm or a praise psalm, that's highly debated as well. We're not entirely sure. But what we do know is that Asaph is wrestling with what he knows. And so we start off in verse 1 with our first point, the affirmation. Asaph's affirmation here in verse 1. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That very first word right out of the gate, surely, this term is actually scattered throughout this psalm. When you read down through it, you'll find that it occurs several times, three times to be exact, and it, and it really serves as a discourse marker for us. You'll notice as we go along that my outline follows this word, surely. It's here in verse 1, it's also in verse 13, and again in verse 18, which marks a change in the narrative for us, and we'll see that as we go. But the word surely, when we look at its, at its definition, at its, at its meaning, it has the idea of truth in the midst of controversy. Truth in the midst of controversy, as you read this verse, you, you could replace that word. Instead of saying, surely God is good, you could say, in spite of everything to the contrary, God is good. It's kind of like us when we say, surely there will be one nice day in January. Against all odds, in spite of everything that seems to the contrary, there will be one nice day in January. Same concept. Asaph says, surely God is good to Israel. And we'll note how, how he says, in spite of everything to the contrary, we'll note that in a second, but we need to look at this affirmation that Asaph gives. Those three words following the first word. God is good. This is the affirmation of Asaph. It's a foundational truth. And this concept that God is good is, is a foundational principle of God's character. So much so for us that it's become an implied concept. Now what do I mean by that? Think about it. When you talk to someone and someone asks you to describe God, most of us are not going to start by saying, God is good. We don't, we don't constantly have that at our forefront. That's not the first point we're going to make to someone when explaining God. And the reason for that is because it's implied for us. We understand God and at, a very core, at the very core of who he is, is that he's good. It's Christianity 101. When you hear John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The backlight to that entire verse 
is the fact that God is good. It's at the core of our doctrine of God. Jesus himself says that only God is good in Mark 10. And in Genesis 1, you see the word good repeated over and over and over again as God creates, which reflects the creator. God saw that it was good. He created and he saw it was good, reflecting who God is. The most, I think, the most beautiful summary of this actually comes in 1 Chronicles 16. In the middle of 1 Chronicles 16.34, it says, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. God is good. And not only that, but notice the directional focus that Asaph takes with this. Keep reading in verse 1. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And what Asaph is saying is that to Israel, to the pure in heart, God is particularly good. In general, yes, God is good, but particularly to Israel and those who are pure in heart. This forms a parallel in poetry for us. These two lines seem to almost duplicate one another. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's a parallelism. And what Asaph is saying, his overarching directional focus of the goodness of God is for those who are faithful to God. To the pure in heart is what it says at the end of verse 1. And it's interesting, the concept of pure in heart, it doesn't mean that these people are perfect. We know that very, very well. We are not perfect, far from it. But it means, it does mean that they are devoted to God as one should be. They are pure in heart. Their motives, their desires are pure. They stumble and fall, yes. But their devotion to God is true. It's interesting, the term heart here in verse 1 actually occurs several times throughout this psalm. Six times to be exact, if you're a numbers guy like me. It occurs here in verse 1, in verse 7, in verse 13, in verse 21, and in verse 26 twice. And the reason for that, the reason that's significant is, is that when we understand the heart, it's, it's our internal being, and that's really where this struggle comes for Asaph. It's an, it's an internal struggle that he's dealing with. He, he makes this correct affirmation, this doctrinal foundational principle. And yet, as we get into verse 2 and our second point, he has this dilemma within his heart. He, he sees the pure in heart in verse 1, but notice the contrast in verse 2 that he starts with. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. This concept, when we understand our walk with God, Asaph understands that as well, but he recognizes that his steps almost stumbled. He almost slipped. He's walking along the road of faith, and he's reached a point that he struggles. Now notice in this text here, Asaph is not an unbeliever. He's just a genuinely concerned, genuinely struggling believer. He almost slipped. And he recognizes that. He believes, he understands, he knows the affirmation, but that doesn't mean he's not going to struggle in this fallen world. And the same is true for us, isn't it? We know the truth, we understand the truth, and we believe the truth, but that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. And that's one of the things that makes Asaph so relatable for us. He tells it like it is. It's not black and white for Asaph. The struggle is real. He's struggling with what he knows, what he believes, versus what he is seeing. 
And so we get into our second point, the observation that Asaph makes. Here in verse 3, he starts by saying, I was envious of the boastful. I saw the peace of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. Asaph is being brutally honest about his thoughts right now. The, the object of his frustration, the object of his almost slipping from the path, is the wicked, namely the prosperity of the wicked. It says that he's envious of them. And you'll notice in the second half of verse 3, it says, I saw the peace of the wicked. He's not just observing this. The term is that he sees with a desire. He sees with envy. So if you want to reread this, it could be, I was envious of the boastful, and I saw and was envious of the peace of the wicked. He, he doubted the great providence of God, and he desired what the wicked had. Asaph is struggling, just like we do. Now, as, as we observe the wicked, as we get into our point of observation in verses 3 through 12, we're not going to hit every single word here, but I hope to convey the gist of what's going on, the full picture here. Notice how he starts in verse 4. He says, for there are no pains in their death. That's an interesting way to start. The, their death is, is not one of tragedy. It's not one of great suffering. It's not one of mournful loss, but rather it's a silent, quiet, peaceful death in their lavish homes. And it's interesting how he points out death here in verse 4. Death we know to be the great equalizer of all things. Everyone will die. But yet when he observes the death of the wicked, he says, why is there death? even the worst of things, still so much better. He's envious. It's not that bad. He continues on. In verse 4, he says, Their body is fat. Now we know in the ancient Near Eastern times, fatness was considered a symbol of wealth. It was, it was considered a good thing. And in this, the wicked have everything they need. They are wealthy. Notice the parallel. I'm going to jump around a little bit in verse 7. Go down to verse 7. It says, their eye bulges from fatness. You say, Nate, that's disgusting. And I think to help our understanding, there's, there's an alternate interpretation of this, an alternate explanation that says something like this, that while it may not be the best, I, I, I think it's helpful for us. An alternate understanding is that their eyes are milky white. Now, you've all heard of the concept that if you eat too many carrots, you're going to turn orange. But the concept here, that their eyes are milky white, they have drank so much milk, they've had so much abundance that their eyes have become white like milk. They have everything they need and then some. They got their cars. They got their houses. They got their planes. They got pockets full of cash. They do whatever they want. They got the best shoes, the best clothes, the designer brands. There's no issue for them. For food, they got all the steak and potatoes that they could ever have. They can shop at Target as much as they want. <laughs> and they're really disconnected from the reality of life. Take a look at verse 5. Going back to verse 5, it says, They are not in trouble as other men. They are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. And when you see this terminology here about all of mankind and how they are not stricken, they're not suffering like the rest of mankind, it actually takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, where we understand that men 
struggle to produce crop as a result of the fall. And women struggle in the pain of childbearing. And they don't have these issues. They're not in trouble like other men. They don't deal with with the fall like the rest of mankind has to. When the drought hits, their crops keep growing. While my lawn is brown, their lawn looks like a golf course. They, They have no pain in childbirth. It's interesting in today's culture, there is no pain in childbirth for many of these individuals because they kill the baby before it's even born. Notice in verse 8 how they speak. It says that they scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They're so disconnected from society, so disconnected from the troubles of life, that when they see it, all they can do is laugh. They say, oh, that guy over there, he's struggling? How hilarious. Their prosperity is great in their eyes, they love it, and they don't suffer. And notice how Asaph observes their speech even further in verse 9. It says that they have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue goes through the earth. Often in scripture, when we see the language of, of heavens and earth, it's, it's almost a, a superhuman concept. It's a grandeur concept. The big picture of things. And it's, it's almost as if they're standing above the rest of the world. Their influence is superhuman. And there's kind of a twofold take to this. Not only do they set their mouths against the heaven, they, they, they openly mock God, but their speech is pervasive. Everyone's going to hear it. It's all over the world. You can't get away from it. They know everything about everything. They know everyone. They tell about everything. And there's nothing wrong in their life. They have no issues. But then here's the real kicker about their speech. Keep going down. It says, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? This here is, this is the pinnacle of a wicked life. This is the recognition that God exists. They're not doubting that. In fact, they call him Most High, a very revered name of God. They don't doubt God's existence, but they mock and reject him nonetheless. Essentially, they're saying, yes, God is all-powerful. God is this great and amazing, amazing being, but he's so far away. His omniscience isn't true. He's not all-knowing. And if God is so far away, and if he does what he wants, when he wants to, in his own little time frame, we can do whatever we want. He doesn't care. They say that, yeah, we know God exists, but he's way out there. Who gives? And it's, it's amazing how Asaph concludes his observations here. He says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Their life is easy, they have no struggles, and they have everything they want. This is the prosperity of the wicked that Asaph has seen. And when we read passages like this, it kind of frustrates us a little bit because it seems to fly in the face of everything Scripture says about the wicked. You look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 5, where it says, The righteous of the blameless will make his way straight, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Or you look in Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, 
It says further down, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. But then contrasting that with the wicked in Psalm 1, it says the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. And Asaph is looking at these looking at these things and saying, this is not what I see. You say the wicked are like chaff. I don't see that. One preacher put it this way. Asaph is saying, God, I'm on your side, but it doesn't feel like you're on my side right now. Asaph he sees the success of the wicked in their worldly ways, and he's envious of them. He sees their prosperity. He sees their, their great wealth, everything they have, the lack of, of struggles, and he wants that. That's, that's what he wants. But we have to note at this point something very critical. Asaph's envy is wrong. Asaph's envy is wrong. This is, this is textbook covetousness. He's, he's desiring what someone else has. Rather than thanking God for what God has given Asaph, Asaph is looking over here and saying, I want that. Parents, this concept is all too familiar for you. You give two children each a toy. And one of them is guaranteed to turn to the other and say, I want that one. They're, they're complaining about something they don't have when they already have what they need. Asaph is the same way. His envy is wrong. It's sin. It's idolatry. But he continues. And here we get to Asaph's frustration in all of this. He says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. This, this statement by Asaph is, is the most radical statement in this psalm. He's asking the question that has slowly been building up in his mind as he observes the wicked, as he observes the ungodly, and he's asking the question now, is this worth it? He takes a look at the believer's life and the unbeliever's life, and he says, they have it so much better. Is what I'm doing here worth it? One way to say it is, is, what is the advantage of being a Christian if the wicked get everything I want? And then at the same time, I'm the one who's suffering. Asaph knows that in his heart something isn't right about his conclusion. He says it in verse 16. He says, when I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight. This, this problem is eating him up on the inside. It's so difficult for him that he can't even voice it. When you go back to verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Essentially saying, if I would have brought this up, if I would have voiced my frustrations and my concern, there would have been an audible gasp by other believers. It, it wouldn't be fair. It would be out of alignment with what we know and what we understand. But yet I'm still struggling. It, it's what makes Asaph so relatable. We go through life we know the truth of God's word. We live it out, but yet we see the wicked and how well they do in this world. And we ask ourselves the same question, is this worth it? And for Asaph, he's about to have his vision corrected. This may come as a shock to many of you, but 
For me, I have a great affinity towards abstract art. Tiffany and I really appreciate art galleries, museums, and I'm always looking for the abstract art section. It's always intrigued me. And a great abstract painter who many of you will know, Vincent van Gogh, he was an abstract landscape painter uh, whose paintings I've actually been able to see in L.A. They've had some of them on display in art galleries there. And when you, when you look at an abstract painting, the brush strokes are often all over the place. And in Van Gogh's, you think of something like Starry Night, those brush strokes look like they're going everywhere, but yet, when you look at it, you can see the picture that he's trying to paint. You can see what he's doing. And I know for all of us that if we tried to walk up to a painting like that and stand this close to it, You'd be able to see some very minute brush strokes, but you wouldn't be able to tell what's going on in the picture. In Van Gogh's Starry Night, that very blue and, and yellow painting that he has, if you stood right up close to it, you wouldn't be able to see what's going on. All you would see is right what's there in front of you. you in order to actually see the painting, you have to back up, don't you? and really get the fuller picture. And that's exactly what Asaph is dealing with here. He, he's standing too close to the painting, to use that analogy. He's staring at it right here, and he's saying, I don't get it. He's looking at what he sees right in his immediate field of vision, and he's saying that this is troublesome to me. He's not seeing the fuller picture. He needs to take a step back in order to get the larger vision of what's going on. You constantly see the language of how he sees, he observes something. In our world today, a large amount of the population struggles with a little thing that's corrected by these. Asaph needed to have his vision corrected. What he was seeing wasn't the whole picture. And in verse 17, that's exactly what happens. Take a look at verse 17 as we see Asaph's reorientation in our fourth point here, the reorientation. He says this, I'll back up to 16 to give us a little context. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. The concept here of the sanctuary of God, there, there's much debate over what this means, whether Asaph is trying to be abstract in his understanding, whether he's, he's trying to understand a larger meaning, but I actually prefer a simple definition. When you hear the words, the sanctuary of God, he's referring the tabernacle or the temple. He's seeing the place of corporate worship to the Lord. To put it simply in today's vernacular, Asaph went to church. And it was there that he sees the fuller picture, that he understands things from God's perspective. And isn't that part of what we do here at church? We, we come to worship God in the fullest sense. We come to reorient ourselves to his word after a wearying week. We come to fellowship in the unity of Christ. There's so much beauty and joy in corporate worship. After a week of struggling with the world, isn't there so much rejuvenation when you walk through those doors and say hi to Kenny? It's this concept of, of being together with other believers, recognizing that we all are struggling at times. And we need to be reoriented like Asaph to the Lord. 
We need to have our eyes solely fixed on God. We need to recognize and put into their right place what our troubles and our suffering really is. This is, this is what happened to Asaph. He, he snapped out of it. With the word of God as his guide, he now moves forward in a glorious new perspective in this psalm. Take a look at what he says. It's, it's the beautiful language here. He says in verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cause them to fall to destruction. It's interesting. Asaph steps. He's no longer the one who's slipping. His footing is firm. It's now the wicked he sees who are stumbling, and their stumbling leads to a much greater fall, their ultimate destruction. By reorienting his focus now, he understands that what, what was really stumbling was the fact that the wicked are on their way to hell. And it's interesting in verse 19, he says, How they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. They, they may have spent all of their life in this grand security of everything they have and everything they could ever want, but in a moment it's gone. And it's nothing to them anymore. I think of the parable that Jesus told of the rich man who had big, big barns, great wealth, and he built bigger barns, right? What did God say to that man? Two words, you fool. And that's exactly what the wicked are here. They've built this great wealth for themselves on earth, but they have not stored up wealth in heaven. And God calls them fools. Now friends, don't let, don't let these be the words that you hear. A life of worldly gain has no comparison to a life lived for Christ. Friends, don't be like the wicked who have rejected God, their end is clear and it's terrifying. It says they are completely swept away by terrors and this actual word here is very tumultuous. It's, it's a scary word in and of itself. Their, their peace and prosperity is no longer the case. And Asaph sees this, and he actually turns to look at himself moving forward. He takes a look at verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. He, he realizes that his observations were misguided. And to an extent that he lacked spiritual sense like an animal. He, he snaps out of it. You'll, you'll notice when you go back, I'm jumping around a little bit. In verse 20, he says, like a dream when one awakes. He, he's been seeing the wicked. It's been like a dream. And all of a sudden, he wakes up. And reality actually sets in. He was misguided. In his understanding, his focus wasn't in the right place. His perspective was poor. His face was right up against the painting. And in verses 23 and 24, you have one of the most beautiful depictions of a life lived with Christ in Scripture. Notice what he says here in verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will lead me, and afterward take me in glory. He sees that it's, it's God who has a hold on him, and the gospel tells us that none can snatch us out of the Father's hand. He sees that it's God who is guiding him, it's God who's giving him wisdom, and it's God who will bring Asaph to be with himself. That's the life lived for Christ right there. It's all in the hands of God. 
His, his thinking is no longer focused on the wicked, on their fancy cars, on their fancy houses, and all their airplanes and their money. His focus is no longer on that. His sole desire is Christ. Take a look at verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And here we have the concept of heavens and earth, a full encompassing thing. The first question, whom have I in heaven but you? It begs an answer of no one. And that's exactly Asaph's thought. There is no one I want in heaven other than you. And on earth my desire is nothing but you. In verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. He recognizes that even though he may fail, and he certainly has failed, he knows that God is the strength of his heart and his portion. These two concepts, strength of heart and portion, have a nice mirror in this passage. Before, he was concerned about the wicked in that they were at peace and they had everything they wanted. Now he recognizes that God is my strength, I am at peace, and he is my portion. God is everything I want. Contrasting himself with the wicked. In lieu of his observations, what he realizes is that this entire time, he already has what he's desired with God. He has the peace with God. He has everything he needs with God. Notice in verse 27 what it says. The second line of verse 27, you have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. It's interesting that he uses a past tense verb. You have destroyed it's not that you will destroy, you have destroyed. Asaph already sees the battle is over. He already sees that the wicked are done. That is how sure Asaph is of God's promise. The wicked will perish in the end. And now we've, we've really come full circle. We've come back to Asaph's original affirmation from verse 1 here, now in verse 28. He says in verse 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. He started off by saying, Surely God is good, but as for me, now he says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. He says, now that I have set Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. You see, before his feet were slipping, he was about to stumble. And yet now God is his refuge. God is the strength of his steps. Before, he was scared to voice his doubts. You remember how he didn't want to say anything? But now, he's an evangelist. He is proclaiming the works of God from the hilltops. Asaph realizes that God has been with him this entire time, and that his previous perspectives were not focused on God as they should have been. He sees now exactly what the psalmist sees in Psalm 1, that the wicked are like chaff. Friends, do not envy the wicked. Do not envy them. Most of all, pity them. For they're the poorest of all. Real quickly here, think of the rich man and Lazarus. We know that story from Luke chapter 16. The rich man had everything he ever wanted, and he died and ended up in hell. Lazarus was a poor man, a beggar who had nothing, and yet he ended up with the Lord. And when you read that parable, when you read that story, the question to be begged here 
is who was truly rich and who was truly poor. Was it the rich man who had everything? It says he was rich. Was he rich? And then on the other hand, you have Lazarus, a beggar, a poor man. But was he really poor? Do not envy the prosperity of the wicked. What does this psalm teach us? And I would say that it teaches us exactly what I titled this sermon. All that glitters is not gold, but a life with God is far more abundant than any amount of riches. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this right perspective. That as we come from a weary world and we see the wicked and how they do so well, remind us, Lord, of what the truth is. Lord, we long to see your justice come. But until then, Lord, give us perseverance in this life. Give us the assurance of who you are. Give us the understanding that you are good. That you love your people. That you care for your people. And Lord, may that be the understanding and the joy that we have that you, you love us. In the midst of suffering, Lord, we know that you are far greater. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd guide us in the rest of this week. Give us strength. May our joy be found solely in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.